Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Katrina Matthews, and I'm Managing Editor at Continued Social Work. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Ben Bencomo, discussing the effect of childhood family trauma on adult relationships with our guest, Katie Gillis. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Katrina. Hello and good morning, Katie. I am very excited about our podcast today. We have with us Katie Gillis. Katie Gillis is a psychotherapist, author, and consultant with a passion for working with survivors of traumatic relationships. She's a licensed clinical social worker and a board-approved clinical supervisor. Katie has extensive experience working with survivors of family trauma and dysfunction. Due to both her personal and professional experiences, Katie has focused her work on helping survivors grow in the aftermath of trauma. She has published two books on intimate partner abuse, and her third most recent book uh, is being released this weekend, the first weekend of July 2023. Through her published writing, as well as her presentations and trainings, Katie hopes to help others develop awareness and healing. Katie, I'm very excited for our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. I know it's a busy time for you, an exciting time for you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this. I know it's weird to say exciting to talk about trauma, but it is really a passion of mine to talk about this topic. Absolutely. No, and a passion for many of our listeners, I'm sure. So I'm sure that everything that you have to share with us today will be very well received by our listeners. Um, Katie, I am always really interested in hearing about how people find social work or better yet how social work finds us I find that very interesting so if you wouldn't mind would you share a little bit about your own path to social work how did social work find you so I love that you say it like that. I love that you say it finds us because that's actually how I was going to answer that was, you know, I remember as a child always being like, oh, I want to be a veterinarian. And I even could say that word as a child. And I remember my mom being like, oh, that's interesting. She can say that word, you know, very young age. So I really wanted to be a veterinarian. I really wanted to help animals. Um, and then for a while, like I thought I was going to be a lawyer for maybe a second or two. I don't know. All of a sudden, I don't know, something between um, end of high school, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to school and study psychology. And now I know, as most social workers and therapists, I think, realize is that many of us, not all, but many of us, I think, go into this field trying to kind of figure out, you know, our own history. And like, oh, if I can study psychology, that'll make things make sense. Or if I can solve other people's trauma, that'll help me kind of help my own. (laughs) So I, I really think it just kind of fell on me um, like that. So it definitely, like you said, came to me. Absolutely. Um, my daughter's currently in the I want to be a vet stage. So she and I yes. watch all of the vet shows <laughs> as yes. often as we can. But but yes, it's interesting how, how social work at different points in our life just kind of starts to make sense uh, for yep, us. Well, sure. I know that that I and many others are glad that social work found you and you, <laughs> um, you. you've been able to share a lot of your experiences already through your writing and, and presentations. So again, we're happy to have you here. Thank uh, you. Katie, how did you first become interested in working in the specialized area of family trauma specifically? 
So this is definitely another thing where, you know, I, it's weird because I feel like so many of us have, you know, kind of two minds. It's like, we know we have dysfunctional history, you know, if, if we have dysfunctional history, we know it, but maybe we just kind of compartmentalize it. We put on the back burner, so to speak. And we think, okay, well, it's not going to affect me. You know, I just, I'm aware of it. Um, and then I noticed that, you know, the universe has its way of like sending you clients who you can relate to like have the issue that maybe you have or something um i really think the universe does that to us so many of my clients if not most or all had some kind of family trauma and even if they were coming in for other things like relationship issues um i work a lot with um you know domestic violence it's a lot of people coming in you know for help with that um you know of course depression anxiety life stressors things like that but then we would find that there was some underlying dysfunction or some underlying trauma that was more than just the like and i'm using like my air quotes like normal dysfunction or things like that things that really stuck with them and so you know yeah they were coming in for anxiety yeah they were coming in for insomnia or a unhealthy relationship or even an abusive relationship but then we start talking about oh well they haven't had any healthy relationships in their whole life you know and we would really start to kind of unpack that and and i started being like wow okay you know this is really a pattern it's a pattern among all my clients it's like stuff that like patterns I can see in them because of my professional experience with them but also because I'm like yeah I remember that I remember having those thoughts and those feelings and those like kind of awakening moments and and things like that so it really kind of all started to to kind of come down from there yeah absolutely and so looking at um and again this is I think one of the things that separates us as social workers but looking at how have those experiences impacted the the everyday yeah. reality of of the clients mm-hmm. that you're having those conversations with yeah yeah for sure mm-hmm. now Katie can you uh define for us what is childhood family trauma specifically to use um some of your words can you share information on the difference between and I'm going to use their quotes as well, uh, between a normal level of dysfunction uh, and what might make a family experience traumatic, especially in childhood. Absolutely. Okay. So um, I always kind of say that, you know, trauma right now is it's a buzzword right now. I feel, I feel like it's every third thing that you click on, especially if you're on like the, the TikToks and the Instagrams of the world, like it's every, everything is trauma and that's good, but it's also kind of, um, you know, many argue that we're kind of um, watering it down and things like that. So I do want to say that I recognize that it is really broad right now, but I also want to recognize that family trauma itself is broad. Um, it, there is a, you know, a normal level of dysfunction, because I feel like no person, no human being is going to go through this lifetime with a perfect childhood. Um, and, and people who do, I mean, are good for them, but maybe, I don't know, I think like that in itself would be in, in form of drama, because then you're sheltered. Anyway, podcast for another day. Um, but like, I, I really think that, um, you know, people who have gone through um, trauma, like they, un- the family trauma, they understand that this is something that affects them more than just the, okay, like, you know, mom had her quirks or, you know, dad did his thing or whatever. It's m- more than like the, the stuff like that. So, so usually like what I like to do is kind of give um, an example of, you know, a, a normal level of dysfunction is a family who can, 
usually they can acknowledge that they're imperfect. Usually they kind of, you know, many times you'll hear them even joke about it. And I'm not saying it's a exact, like it's an exact determinant to figure out what's normal dysfunction and what's not, but usually families who are healthy in their level of dysfunction, healthy in their imperfections, mm-hmm. they're able to say, yeah, you know, we're imperfect. Like this is something that we recognize. And you can bring it up and you can acknowledge it and there's not like a power struggle behind it. Um, you know, you could probably say to your caregiver, you know, Hey, this is something you kind of do. And oh, I do kind of do that, you know, and there's more of like that give and take as opposed to the punishment that comes from um, growing up in, in a very dysfunctional environment that is like weaponized. So I know I say all that and that's very, very broad, but family trauma is like anything that, a, a person feels happened in their family of origin and in their childhood that is affecting them today. So it could be anything from growing up in a in a place where there was a national disaster, you know, growing up in a war zone, um, having to flee your country and come to another country, um, having parents who are, um, you know, have mental illness. And I always like to specify it's untreated me- mental illness. I'm not trying to stigmatize mental illness. There are people every day, all day, managing mental health and parenting, and that's not at all a a trauma, uh, automatically a trauma. I'm talking like untreated. Um, You know, I have many clients whose parents who, you know, they were like dealing with some serious mental health symptoms and they were untreated, and that can be traumatizing for a child. And same thing with substance use, untreated, I mean. So things like that that happen in in the childhood environment that people feel like, you know, impacts them today in their adult life. Right. No, that, that makes sense. And I'm glad that you explained that because it is a bit of a double edge, a, a double sided yeah. coin when, yeah. when we, we see these conversations happening more readily um, in different circles. And so I, I appreciate that you explained that, that while we are excited that people are having these conversations and acknowledging yeah. traumatic experiences, we want to make sure that it's not diluted and that we really understand yes. what that traumatic experience might look like. I yeah, like I always tell clients, um, you know, I work a lot with teens and adolescents and, and they'll come to me and be like, oh, I found out on TikTok that, you know, and, um, and whatever they start the sentence with, I found out on <laughs> social media that and I'm like, oh, this is, yeah, so they're like, oh, this means that I have this disorder. This means that I have trauma and they're not mm-hmm. always wrong, but they're not always right. And so it, right. it definitely it, just be careful of where you get stuff. And I'm glad we're having these conversations, but on the other hand, you know, I feel like there's always going to be, like you said, you know, like a give and take. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You started, um, Katie, you started talking and defining some of these, but I wonder if we can go a little bit more into some of these major areas of of problematic dysfunction that you talk about in family systems. Uh, Maybe if you can give us an example of what they might look like. You know, you Mm -hmm. spoke of untreated mental illness and substance use, but Mm -hmm. I know that, that there are many others. Would you mind going into those and giving us some examples? Absolutely. So the ones that I talk about in my book, and I'll just kind of give a rundown and then I'll go back and and give examples. So I talk about abuse and neglect, and I know that um, they're often linked, but they're, they're not always the same there many times they're different abuse as we know is something that happens to a person and neglect is the absence of of things happening um substance use or mental illness within the family that is untreated 
um, divorce or death in the family, like changes in the family structure that are not dealt with appropriately, uh, parental abandonment, and then psychological or narcissistic uh, family structure, or family system. So the first one, um, abuse and neglect, those are always linked, those are frequently linked together. And I do link them together in my in my book, um, just for the sake of, ex of explaining them. But abuse, of course, as we know, is something that happens to the person, emotional abuse, physical abuse, um, absolutely, of course, sexual abuse, things like that. Um, neglect is I find in my experience, and maybe other clinicians have had different experiences, I find that neglect often is something that wasn't done maliciously. It is kind of something that happens um, as a result of other things going on within the family. And I do want to say that many of the things I said, the reason why I listed them off first before explaining is because so many of them um, can be intertwined. For example, let's say you have a, a parent who has an untreated mental illness or untreated substance abuse disorder, and that they're really struggling with that. That can, of course, impact the whole rest of the family. And maybe the kid was um, or the kids were neglected because the the parent was struggling so bad with that mental illness that the kid wasn't getting the the things that they needed for school and getting the care that they needed in the medical care and things like that so so many of these things can really kind of happen together it's not like they're um, mutually exclusive um, so abuse and so abuse and neglect abuse happening you know, to a child, of course, that's absolutely going to result in, in a traumatic history. Neglect. Um, I find in my practice that neglect is something that so many people feel um, like shame discussing because it's like, you know, abuse, for example, and not to minimize it in any way, shape or form, but abuse, you know, you can come in and you can say, this happened to me. I I was abused, this happened, I was hit, I was sexually abused, whatever. Um, and you have almost like the, again, air quotes, evidence that it happened. Um, and then that almost gives you like the permission, again, air quotes, to grieve and be upset about it. Neglect is like, there's so many other factors, especially when I work with clients from generations older than mine. So, the, you know, generations or cultures, um, the where they were like, I, it wasn't neglected, this was, I had to take care of my brothers and sisters like that was my role that wasn't neglect so you know there's so many different factors that come into that that it's it's definitely not um you know something that is as easily examined um so i did talk about substance use and mental illness in the family that again untreated um things like that especially you know i've had clients who you know they wake up in the middle of the night and um mom or dad is you know acting paranoid or screaming um is you know, with severe mental illness that's untreated, that's very traumatizing for a child, you know, because they don't know what's going on. Um, or if there are absences where, you know, maybe a parent is, you know, hospitalized, or if, um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of clients whose their parents have to be taken by, you know, EMTs or, or the police or stuff like that because of mental illness, and it's just so, it's at that right there, so it's so traumatizing. Um, divorce or death within a family and again i always want to specify this is these are changes that are not dealt with appropriately having right. a divorce like i always want to tell people that sometimes that's the best thing you can do i'm not in any way trying to say don't divorce that's not at all um it's not the it's not the divorce and it's not the death that's nobody's fault um death happens and you know of course it's it's scary to a child and it's sad to a child but it doesn't have to result in lasting trauma because ideally in a love my air quotes perfect situation you know the the parents and the caregivers will help the child and say yes like this is what happened you know the person and, and dealt with it however it is that that family 
you know, relates to death and how they want to kind of convey that message. What I find is traumatic is when it's something that's just brushed under the rug, like all of a sudden mom never comes home or all of a sudden dad just like moves out one day and has another family. And then the kids are like, wait, what? Um, Mm -hmm. That needs to be explained. Like I have a lot of people come to me and say, you know, I'm really scared of getting divorced because I don't want to traumatize my child. And, and that's definitely a decision that I can never make for the client. But I, you know, I always kind of want to stress that on the other hand, you know, we could be, you know, traumatizing kids by not, you know, handling, like doing the healthy thing and, and splitting a relationship that needs to be. So divorce that isn't dealt with in a healthy way, um, you know, any kind of change in a family structure. I usually use divorce and death, but anything that changes a family structure um, that isn't dealt with. Uh, parental abandonment, and um, this is not something like um, adoption. This is something like a parent just all of a sudden washing their hands of a child. And you see that a lot with kids who are involved in like the criminal justice system. Um, in my work with teens and a kid gets arrested, um, you know, in living in New Orleans, you know, we have a lot of teen crime right now. And I know it's really everywhere, but New Orleans really is dealing with a lot of it. Um, so I have a lot of kids who are like, they're caught stealing a car and their parents are like, I'm done with you. Um, and that you can't do that to a 15 year old, you know? And so that it, it, it really fuels that, that, uh, that cycle. Um, and then psychological or narcissistic family systems. So when you have that psychological abuse, and I always like to, to differentiate psychological abuse from um, abuse, even though I know it's, it's abuse and many, time pe- many times people use it the same as emotional abuse, I consider it something that's just so unique and so different and the experience is something that is so, um, ex- like, it's so, it's hard, it's hard to explain to people who haven't really been through it. Um, and so it's like a whole family system that works to kind of create the homeostasis of, of the, of this dysfunctional system. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yep. So those are my, those are my ones that I list in my book. And I, and I always, you know, I want to say these are not, you know, an exhaustive list. I mean, there are many other ways that people can say, okay, I had a different experience in my family that wasn't listed. Absolutely. These are some of the major ones that I see in my practice. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing those. I can see how so many of these can be very intertwined and interrelated and and you can have almost that layering that compound trauma that 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 happens uh, yeah. you know within a family system that is experiencing like you say untreated substance use untreated mental yeah. illness and maybe there's absences of the parent um, because of the manifestations of some of that untreated mental illness or untreated substance use and then there's also possibly acts of um, commission of abuse acts of omission mm-hmm. of neglect and some of those things so i, I like I how you say that layering because it's true yeah. it's, it's very much it's not like okay this one thing happened and this is why it's really you know so many of those these things can affect each other absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely now in your experience what are some of the major ways that 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 trauma that childhood family trauma can affect the survivors of those experiences into their adulthood now in one of your articles um 
published in Psychology Today. It's entitled 10 Ways Childhood Trauma Can Manifest in Adult Relationships. So I am wondering if you wouldn't mind going into those 10 specific ways that in your experience, in your professional experience, those 10 ways that those who experience that trauma um, that can find that this affects them in adulthood, can affect their relationships in adulthood. Mm -hmm. Would you mind expanding um, on those a little bit for our listeners? Absolutely. So in my article, I have 10 major ways that I have seen in in my practice of having a childhood family dysfunction affecting um, us in relationships. And, you know, again, not an exhaustive list, but these are like the probably like the major 10. Um, Number one is fears of abandonment. And that can look different in each of us. For some people, they're so scared of abandonment that they avoid relationships. Because if you never get in a relationship, then you're not going to be abandoned. Um, And that even goes as far as some people even, you know, they even struggle with friendships too. I mean, these aren't, aren't, it doesn't always affect us in romantic relationships. A lot of times it's um, even with coworkers or things like that. You know, there's always like that guard up of this person is eventually going to hurt me. So I have to, you know, really kind of prepare accordingly. Um, So that will be people who are in relationships and they find that, you know, like any kind of hint that the person is going to leave, they freak out. Um, It, 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 a lot of times it it really comes out across like an anxious attachment. Um, So anytime someone is like, okay, well we just got an argument and I'm worried they're going to leave or they go out with friends or they do this. And it really is affecting every day every aspect of their life it's not just okay i have a fear of abandonment and i and i acknowledge it it's it's that you know i i worry about my um partner going to a guy's weekend because i'm scared they're gonna you know leave me or stuff like that 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 kind of thing where it affects their relationship it affects the ability of the relationship to to be a like healthy dynamic and healthy like trusting dynamic um Number two, I have easily annoyed with others. And this one, this one, I got a lot of uh, interesting questions about like, what do you mean easily annoyed with others? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, so people who have had a lot of, uh, I find it people who've had maybe narcissistic family structure or a lot of psychological abuse in their family. Um, they're very hyper aware of things that other people might do that are going to uh, set them off. And, and I'm not excusing it in any way, but I, I find that it's like a, like they're kind of at this constant state of hyper arousal. So maybe their partner, you know, didn't take out the dishes and they're like, are you kidding me? Like you didn't take out the dishes, take out the dishes. <laughs> I hope you aren't taking out the dishes, put away the dishes or take out the trash. Take out the, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they took out the dishes. Um, so yeah, so if the partner, you know, didn't take out the trash or something like that, you know, this is a sign that you don't love me. I knew it. You weren't listening to me. Things that are above like the, the, you know, normal. Okay. I, if you're getting easily annoyed by other people and you're able to acknowledge it and you're able to say, right. okay, I'm, you know, I'm getting, I'm feeling really irritable today. Like, I think we all have that time where we're like, I'm feeling kind of irritable today, or maybe this weekend, maybe as a change in our right. life, but but what I'm looking for usually is, is a pattern. Like, are you right. constantly annoyed with the other person? Like the way they sit, the way they dress, the way they sit down, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's usually a sign of, you know, you're, you've been mistreated for so long in your childhood and you were unable to say anything. Um, 
because of the power differential, you were unable right. to say anything. So then now right. that you have the, the freedom and the space, you're able to, you know, explain. And you're always in like that, that hyper aware, hyper aroused state. Uh, number three is, is kind of similar. Uh, number three is needing a lot of time to yourself. And, and when I say, when I say it's similar, I mean, is that there are many times that there are people who need a lot of time themselves and there are people who need, who get easily annoyed with others. And it has nothing to do with trauma. So especially like for people who are neurodivergent, for example, right. that can just right. be something that's like, you know, who they are. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you, you know, have a history of trauma because you need a lot of time to yourself. But what I mean is, um, you know, a lot of times these things kind of like the, the, the things we were talking about earlier, they co they coexist at the same time. Mm -hmm. So people who have had a lot of, you know, overstimulation with being around other people or people who have a history of, you know, maybe they, they were mistreated in their childhood and they were really treated, you know, they weren't allowed to, to take care of their own needs. So mm -hmm. spending a lot of time by themselves is a safe space because it's, you know, they weren't allowed to do that. They weren't allowed to take care of their own needs. They weren't allowed to yeah. just be, you know, alone and, and things like mm -hmm. that. So they really kind of take a lot of, um, like it, they take a lot of time to just be in that safe space. Right. Almost like an overcompensation yeah. for a, yeah. a lack, like a, a lack of control in, in previous experiences and overcompensating by really wanting to over control that. Yeah. I like how you say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like sometimes I'm like, it makes sense perfectly in my head. I, I feel like I find that I'm, when I'm writing, it makes perfect sense. And then I'm trying to explain it. I'm like, well, how come this oh, yeah. is coming across like how I wrote it in my article? But yeah, you said it, you said it perfectly. That's ex exactly what I find. And, and I remember working with clients and I would find that so many of them were like, Oh, I just needed to like, just take time to myself. Like after mm -hmm. we you know, had an argument or something and I was like, huh, I'm seeing, you know, patterns here. Um, right. Number four, settling for unequal financial or household responsibilities. And this, what I mean by this one is that the person is settling for mistreatment. I don't mean, you know, many couples will you know, work out between the couple, you know, work, work out between the two of them, but this is my responsibility, this is your responsibility, and then that's fine, and I'm not here to tell you what's, what's yours and what's theirs, but, but settling for having someone who is, um, you know, I have a lot of clients who, you know, someone was really mooching off them, someone was really, you know, using them for their finances, they were using them for their home, and they, they, always had some excuse of why they couldn't work, always had some kind of excuse of why they couldn't contribute, or maybe they were working, but their money was going towards something else. And the person would just put up with it and put up with it and put up with it. And, you know, you know, and I would say to them, like, what's going on here? Like, what are you getting from this? And it, it goes back to, again, that sometimes that fear of abandonment, sometimes it's, well, they're going to leave. Or sometimes it's, you know, well, this is the best I'm going to do in this relationship. And these aren't like conscious statements like people don't usually sit and say oh I'm never going to get anyone better it's usually something that's way back here in your head you're not conscious of it and but somewhere that little voice your inner child is saying okay you're you're not going to get much better or you know this is what you deserve or things like that um, that's common another common thing is people who observe that in their childhood maybe they observed um, you know dad never worked and then mom had to work three jobs, take care of the house, take care of the kids, that kind of thing. So they really learn that dynamic and they learn that that's what happens and that you have to put up with it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's definitely something that is, 
This is definitely something that we would we would work through. Uh, staying in relationships much longer than their expiration date really follows that. So that's number five. And um, like I said, a lot of these really kind of go together. So that one is something, again, goes back to that fear of abandonment, that fear of I'm never going to do anything, but I'm never going to get anyone better. I'm never going to get another relationship. Like this is the person who loves me. I might as well stay with them. Um, this is the best I'm going to do. I mean, these are really these, this inner voice that these people were, that many people are saying, mm. and there's a lot of shame in that. There's a lot of shame in saying, you know, I'm, I feel like I can't do anything, do any better. Um, but it's true. And it, and it ends up with people, you know, staying maybe, years past when the relationship was supposed to end. And a lot of times in my work with um, domestic violence survivors, you know, we'll look back years before and they'll be like, well, that was red flag number one. And then this was red flag number. And I've been there. I've done, I've done the, okay, well, that was red flag number 70. Why did I ignore all these red flags? Um, Probably because I grew up that I was supposed to ignore red flags or I was supposed to intellectualize them or, um, dis- excuse them or even deny them. Like, oh, that's not really happening. They're just having a bad day. So that's definitely something that you know we work on with cl- with that I work on with clients when they're dealing with that. Um, another thing that ends up presenting a lot um, in the therapeutic session with couples is number seven, which is um, avoiding conflict. Um, Wait, I'm sorry, that was number six. I jumped from (laughs) number six, (laughs) constant arguing in relationships or avoiding conflict at all costs. So that's something that I see a lot uh, with with couples where one person, I see that there's like one of two dynamics that will happen to the extreme. I mean, I feel like everyone kind of has their way of of arguing. Everyone has their way of of how they present themselves in an argument and and that's fine. But I'm talking about the extremes where like, I'm going to avoid any and all conflict because I'm scared of what's, what's going to happen. Or I am going to like constantly argue to, to the 10th degree about everything. Like everything is a huge argument. And, and I always tell people, like, I worry about clients who are couples who will come in and say, Oh, I never, we never argue. And I'm like, what do you mean never? Like you've been together 10 years and you've never had an argument. Like that, that I would kind of explore because I feel like arguing, you know, even the word argue, the word fight, you know, those things are such like negative words, but there's a lot of like healthy, a lot of like healthy things can come from having a healthy conflict as long as it's done in a, in a right, in the right way. But a lot of times, yeah, but a lot of times people who've had um, traumatic histories with family members where, you know, can maybe communication felt like a war zone. Um, If we say anything, it's, it's going to get worse. So we really learn to just be quiet. Or we learn that there is no way to just say, hey, I was kind of upset about this thing that you did. Um, Maybe you know, we can kind of talk about it instead. It's like, you know, so it, I, I look at it for those extremes, right. like the, yeah. And then number seven kind of follows up with that is a not knowing how to repair after fights. And this is something that's very common that I see with um, people who grew up in argument, grew up in um, environments where there were no healthy arguments. And this is why when I work with families, you know, people will say to me, I, I don't want to argue in front of the kids. And I'm like, 
I understand that. I don't think anyone like loves arguing. I don't think anyone wants to argue <laughs> in front of other people, but I, I feel like kids, like all human beings, you know, we need to see how healthy conflict is managed. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, it's basically, you know, from social learning theory, we learn how to express our needs and express our uh, displeasures through watching others. So, right. Yeah, so we have, and, and, and that's a life skill that learning yeah. how to resolve those those conflicts in a healthy manner. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so kids who don't see that, you know, they don't know how to have an argument. So maybe you know, a lot of teens I work with, it's like, oh, you know, she looked at me wrong, and next thing I know, we're fighting, and whoa, how do we get to this? <laughs> how do we get to this point? Because that's what they're seeing. That's, that's how conflict is managed. You know, they would never sit down and, and just have a conversation. So people who don't rep- know how to repair after having an argument, um, maybe they'll have the argument and then they separate and they don't talk for three days or they just never address it again. It's almost like it's brushed under the rug and it never is, is talked about again. There are many ways that you can have an argument and, and then handle it in an unhealthy way. And then there are many ways you can have an argument and handle it in a healthy way. So the people who don't know how to repair, you know, the people who don't know how to come back and say, okay, you know, maybe that wasn't my best moment. And you know, how can we, you know, how can we prevent this from happening again? You know, what, what would you like me to do? Um, mm-hmm. Would you like me to make sure I take out the trash every day or something <laughs> like that? Or take out the dishes. Or take out the dishes. You want new dishes? So, so number eight is serial monogamy, and that one is the people who are like so scared to be out of a relationship, and it kind of relates back to the fear of abandonment, um, but it's like a step above that. It's it's like I can't be alone. Um, so you'll see the people who are like. In a, in a like a long-term monogamous relationship, as soon as that ends, boom, the next one, and then boom, the next one, and and for some people that just happens and it works out. Maybe someone's in a long-term relationship and then they get another long-term relationship, and that and that's fine. But w- what I mean is the people who like they cannot be alone. They have to then look for the next person, and they have to look for the you know they have to kind of have someone lined up before ending a relationship because the fear of being alone. And the feeling of being alone is so much worse than being with someone who isn't right for them. Right. So, mm-hmm. so they feel that need to immediately um, look for that yep. that security um, that they yep. find externally it's in like that a, relationship. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a security. Like they feel like, okay, okay I need to have that person because having someone is better than not having anyone because it, right. it there's that inner voice that many children who grew up with neglect or grew up with um abuse or grew up with with really unhealthy levels of dysfunction grew up with a lot of trauma there's that inner voice in the back of their head that's like see you're not lovable you're not worthy you're not um you're not able to be loved you're not going to be able to to be in a healthy relationship you're going to be alone you're going to end up alone and so and again is it not conscious it's it's really like in the back of the head um unless you have enough insight then then it is conscious but usually it's something that people aren't necessarily aware of but they just know that they feel uncomfortable alone or they know they feel anxious and so being with someone it it like helps to kind of prove to them see i'm not unlovable because i have a relationship it doesn't matter if the relationship is unhealthy it doesn't matter if the relationship is past its expiration date but 
they have a person. So right. it's proving that they're that they're lovable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So number nine kind of plays off of that is um, worrying about commitment. So I I notice that their clients kind of do the you know or survivors do one of two things you know that it's either serial monogamy or they're afraid of commitment. And again, it kind of goes back to that fear of abandonment, but but not always. But you know the people who are like you know, a kind of avoidant of relationships or, okay, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this person, but I don't want to commit or, um, you know, I, anytime the relationship starts to get serious, they get kind of anxious and things like that. Because again, people who were close to them hurt them. So if they're going to have other people who are close to them, then they're setting themselves up again to be hurt. Right. And the last one is trying to change your partner. And I find that many survivors of family trauma try to change their partner. And I remember, I mean, many of us have done this many, I did this for years, you know, being like, oh, if you would only just do this, or if you'd only not do that, or if you only didn't use substances, or if you only could just, um, you know, get this, get a job or or whatever it is that you feel like the person needs to do, trying to change them. Mm -hmm. And that definitely goes back to trying to change that caregiver who, you couldn't change and you couldn't affect, you couldn't provoke any kind of change in their, in your caregiver. You couldn't give them any kind of constructive feedback or any kind of, you couldn't even really tell them what they were doing and how it affected you. So it's like, your brain is almost like, this is your chance to to change this person. Yeah. So those are the 10. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those. They, they make perfect sense. And I can tell that this is something that you have a lot of experience with. In one of my previous lives, I worked with teens who were aging out of foster care and starting to navigate those adult relationships and adult responsibilities. And, and because of the traumatic experiences that they had experienced, I, I think that you know, I was able to picture each one of these as you were explaining them. And, and, and that was, that was sort of a constant cyclical pattern of not having that sense of control in, in childhood and mm-hmm. because of the trauma that they experienced and, and having to move in and out of, of state foster care systems, um, trying yeah. to gain that control or, or searching for it in any way that they could by, um, you know, putting up those walls and pushing people away, I'll hurt you before you hurt me or the opposite of, I really need this in my life. I need um, that. I I wasn't really sure what you meant at first by serial monogamy, but when you explained it, that, Mm. that process of having to always have that person um, uh, to feel, to feel that sense of security um, was manifested in a lot of the kids that I worked with as well. So those, those polar extremes. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about, I talk about a a lot of um, people in who've gone through foster care in my book, because I feel like when we talk about family trauma, you know, we always end up talking about, we always end up assuming it's the parents and many times it is, but I I mentioned that in my book, I'm like, for, for each one of us, it's going to be, you know, whatever it was, your, your home environment, whether you were raised Mm -hmm. by two uncles, by your grandparents, whether you had a foster, a foster family, um, whatever. And so I talk a lot about the people who, who've gone through the foster system. So it's really interesting that you've gone through that. Yeah. I bet you could see them. Examples. Absolutely. Um, I thank you again. I I feel like this is a good transition time maybe to, to start talking about, uh, 
we've talked about what some of these traumatic experiences might be, what they might look like, and then how they might manifest at different stages of a person's life. Now, um, this weekend, for those of us, uh, for those listening or or watching us on the continued YouTube page, um, this weekend, the first weekend of July, 2023, your book um, goes live, I guess is the right word, right? Um, Yeah, it's live on Amazon. Yep. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, and and that book, I think, is is a good transition of looking at what do we do now, right? And so mm-hmm. that book entitled The Six Stages of Healing from Family Trauma. Now, based upon what you were talking about in regard to those specific areas of dysfunction, how might we start that process? What would be the first step in healing from family trauma? So the first step, and I'm going to start by just kind of doing a, a quick run through of the, the six, just to say the, the names, just because it kind of helps people okay. kind of visualize that there's, okay. a, you know, six steps. So there's pre-awareness, uncovering, digging in, healing, understanding, and nurturing. And, and I say that so people kind of get that visual of almost like the mountain. Like right. you, start, you start to climb the mountain and you're in pre-awareness. Well, pre-awareness is really like before you even start hiking. It's like right. you're... You're not really sure yet. Um, you know that there's a lot of, um, you know, anxiety. You have a lot of anxiety. You have you have some some unhealthy patterns. Maybe you keep getting in a relationship that is just you keep repeating the same stuff. People will come in and say to me, "I keep dating the same people." Um, you know, I keep you know falling for people who are mean to me. What's going on? And so there's a lot of patterns there, but we haven't really started to uncover, you know that there's a link between our history. Maybe we just think, oh, I'm just attracted to mean people. Um, so the pre-awareness is really like before you even start kind of doing the work of climbing the mountain. It's like you're kind of not really there yet. People are kind of still in like the denial phase. They might not. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and there's a lot of safety in denial. Um, right. Many, it's really, un- it's really unsettling, sometimes unsafe, the, uh, the, especially um, for younger people or people who don't have a lot of support. It can be unsafe to examine our family trauma history, which is why I try not to go there too much, you know, with kids or people who are still like living, you know, people who are still kind of like in that um, family system, especially if you're still living at home because you can't afford to move out. It can be difficult to, to start the uncovering process when you're still living at home. But pre-awareness is really like, you're not really sure why it is that you're having these feelings, but you're recognizing that there's something kind of weird going on or some kind of you know, patterns. So then there's uh, uncovering. Uncovering is the second stage. So uncovering is when you start to realize, okay, yep, I'm seeing some patterns here and I'm recognizing them and I'm recognizing that there was some stuff that happened in my past that might be connected to that. And so uncovering is when you start kind of ascending the mountain (laughs) Mm -hmm. where you're like, and then, you know, you're like, okay, I kind of getting the tools ready. So, um, people will, you know, we start to talk about all the ways to manage self-care and to manage the symptoms that come up, because as you start looking at your history, a lot of negative feelings can come up and, you know, or a lot of negative feelings will come up. And so, and unless you know how to handle that, unless you have your support system and things like that, you know, we work a lot on, on tools, like making sure that you're taking care of your body every day, whatever that looks like for you. If it looks like taking a walk, it looks like making sure you're drinking more water, um, you know, what kind of foods do you like to eat, things like that that make you feel good. 
So that way, when you're starting to uncover, you have um, the tools needed to really kind of take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And then that, yeah, that, so the third stage that you talk about um, is digging in. What might yes. this look like in, in an adult who's experienced childhood family trauma? So digging in is really when you start to look at, um, and I, and I pictured, you know, go ahead and dig, like uncover the stuff, okay. uh, start to look at, you know, patterns that, that went on in your childhood, start to look at things in your childhood that maybe you had, um, ignored, denied, um, excused. There are so many defense mechanisms that come in when we're going through our childhood to help us get through it. Uh, we intellectualize things, you know, oh, well, you know, they're just having a bad day. Um, we excuse things, we deny things. Um, maybe we like don't remember, like we block things out. Um, and so digging in is really when we start to kind of look at those patterns and be like, okay, I blocked a lot of this stuff out, or I d denied a lot of that, or I excused a lot of that. And that was really dysfunctional and that was really traumatic, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, really kind of looking at, okay, these are the things that, that happened. What is it, how did it impact, you know, what, what you look like today or like what your patterns look like today? What can we do to uncover? Um, for some clients, it looks like just coming in and talking. Uh -huh. um, some clients will come in and, okay, we, you know, we just talk about patterns that happened. Um, a lot of times I find that people will start to notice patterns around holidays. Um, for some reason, I have a lot of clients that will come in around holidays and they'll be like, I think it's because of all the time that people have to spend with their family around the holidays. Okay. So they'll come in and say, oh, this for the last like 10 Thanksgivings, I've had to host Thanksgiving at my house and it always has to be me and my mom always did this growing up and uh, and then it's like all starts to be uncovered because then for the other 10 months out of the year it's easier to kind of just go on with your with your days because you're not right. dealing with your caregivers uh -huh. um you know your parents like every day you know it's not like right. when you're a child and you're seeing them every day right um yeah so like a lot of times, you know, 10 months will go by and then people are all excited for Thanksgiving and then they're coming into my office like the week after Thanksgiving and they're like, ah, like, mm -hmm. I remember she used to do this. Like she'd wake me up at quarter four in the morning to make me do all, bake all these pies and then we'd stuff like that would, would come out. Right. And so digging in is really like allowing yourself to sit there and be like, yes, that happened. Like, and a lot of clients will tell me for some reason, people have a lot of deep thoughts, either when they're in the shower or when they're driving. Um, and of course, exercising too, like if people are out walking and, and running and stuff like that, but clients will come in and be like, Oh, I was driving. And, and I remembered, you know, this thing that happened. And then we start talking about the pattern of why it is that they act a certain way because of they were conditioned to act that way. Right. Yeah. That that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. When you when I first um, heard digging in, I immediately went to oh digging in their heels and being stubborn and not wanting oh. to do that. Maybe it's just because I'm raising a teenager right now. But um... <laughs> probably no. But that's good insight because that that helps like with um, 
you know, that, that helps with people, people who are reading the, that I know helps that, um, how to explain what I'm trying to say. Um, right. it helps to know how that would come across like that word. So that's why I kind of give yeah. the visual of like the mountain of, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. But actually leaning into it, digging into it. Digging um, it yeah. To, leading to, into it. Yeah. To, no, that makes sense for sure. Thank you yeah. for that. Um, so the, then we move to these, final three stages the next mm-hmm. stage after digging in you have is healing can you go a bit into that stage of, of the process so doing the work of healing is when we're we're growing we're learning um a lot of these stages are going to be some like e- each person hits hits the stage sometimes before even realizing that they're at the stage and so healing for a lot of people is like how how are you growing? How are you moving forward? And a lot of times we don't know that until we can look back and be like, wow, this year I've really grown. You know, I don't think people know. Okay, today, you know, June twenty sixth, I'm hitting this healing stage. It's usually something that you can kind of notice in hindsight. But that is when we start to notice or we start to work on. Okay, what what patterns were happening? What what ways you know are you seeing your history manifest now? How is you know, how can you work, do the work to change that? And so a lot of times that's done, you know, sometimes through therapy, sometimes just talking about it. Um, if people have a, like a severe enough trauma history, you know, so of course, sometimes I recommend other modalities to work through, you know, the, the trauma and stuff like that before, before you can do the work of healing. Um, I always like to tell clients, it's never anything where I'm like, you like have to hit stage three by a certain time. And then we hit and then we start, you know, healing. Um, like I want you healing by a certain time. Like, no, no, no. It's, it's something that usually people start to realize, okay, I'm, you know, I'm recognizing, I'm seeing the behaviors in myself. You know, I'm noticing I was about to snap at my partner about such and such, but then I remembered, okay. And I took a breath and I was able to change that pattern on my own. And so that is when they're noticing that they're growing or big things are like not reenacting the dysfunctional patterns with the caregivers. So a lot of times people will get, um, you know, maybe they have that dysfunctional relationship with their mom or their dad. They, they get into that dynamic and they're able to stop that. You know, maybe they're able to stop the argument or they're able to disengage. Um, and again, around the holidays, for some reason that, that puts everyone into, um, you know, people are really having to test, you know, their patients and stuff like that. And so, excuse me, people will come back in and, you know, in January and be like, okay, um, you know, I, I noticed a change. I was able to walk out of the, the room during Thanksgiving and, and go and set the table, or I was able to, you know, take the kids outside for, for a game of football or something like that, um, that they notice. okay, whereas in the past, I would have sat and, and gone right, you know, with my dad, like, nope, and we're going to argue about this, and we're going to, you know, bring up all those unhealthy dynamics, but nope, now I was able to, you know, notice that I didn't see myself getting as activated, whether that looks mm-hmm. like less arguing, whether it looks like removing yourself, whatever it looks like for you. So that's... Right like the growing stage. What an empowering moment. I imagine that that must be that feeling mm-hmm. of, um, of recognition and of, of the fact that they were able to do that um, in that, in that point. So um, the is. final, yeah, the final two stages that you uh, talk about are understanding and nurturing. What does understanding and nurturing mean? How might that look like for, for these people healing from this trauma? 
So understanding is understanding how our past influences us. So this is what I usually refer to as like the aha moment of, oh, this is why I do that. Or, oh, that's what I was doing that whole time. Or things like that. Um, understanding mm -hmm. why we do the things we do, how our past influenced us. And it's not about blame. I, I definitely want to stress that it's not about blame. It's not like, oh, I'm like this because it's my parents' fault. Or I'm right. like this because of um, my environment. I mean, you know, is, is, there, is there a factor? Ab absolutely. Um, we are a product of our history. However, it is also taking the responsibility of like, yes, this happened to me and it was traumatic. Um, however, now as an adult, I have the tools and I have the resources available to me to um, work through it and mm -hmm. to you know, to figure out what I'm going to do. And, you know, I no longer have the, the right or the excuse to continue these dysfunctional patterns. You know, and as a teenager, you go to school and, and you're fighting with your peers, like literally fist fighting with your peers and, and things like that, then, you know, I'm not saying that that's okay, but you're, you're an adolescent and you're, mm -hmm. you're learning, you know, what it is that you've gone through. Now, you know, in our thirties and forties, if we go to work and we're, fighting with our peers and stuff like that like no we we need to really do the work of of healing of recognizing okay i'm i'm really triggered by this type of situation um for some reason i was really irritated by whatever happened in that meeting i need to kind of do the work through that um you know the same pattern is happening with my partner again and again what can i do to change that or what can i do to like what what role am i playing in the dysfunctional pattern that I am continuing to per perpetuate. Right. And so that right there is something that the reason why that is a later stage, of course, is because in the beginning that can be very, it feel very victim blaming and it can feel impossible. I mean, if you talk to someone who's just starting to uncover or just starting to be comfortable enough acknowledging and recognizing how dysfunctional or even traumatic their family was, it's not likely for them to be like, okay, well, what part am I playing in the way that I'm perpetuating this dysfunction with my current partner? That it's too much of a jump and you can have people actually go the other way. So you need to, to take the time and go through the work of, of uncovering and go through the work of, of digging in and things like that. So, yeah. and then number six, nurturing. And the reason why I say nurturing is because it's more of like a maintenance stage. It's kind of like, you know, having a car, like you have to do regular maintenance for your car. It's not like you get to a healing and then you're, you're healed and you're it fine and, right. it, and it never affects you again. Like you get to the stage of healing and you know, you, and then it, it turns to maintenance. Um, right. We never fully recover. Like we never fully, um, we, we never fully get to the point where it's like never going to affect us or never going to be a part right. of who we are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That process isn't necessarily a, a finite end that we're looking to, Oh, okay. I'm done. I'm done yeah, doing the that's work. That's it. And I'm healed. This trauma. Yeah. And I'm going to put the cap on it. Yeah. It's not, it's not like you, that's why I consider it kind of like a mountain. It's, it's not like you get to the top of Everest and you, and you get the selfie and you post on Instagram. Okay. I've healed from my family trauma. Abs absolutely not. Now, Will you get to the point where it's manageable? Absolutely. Will you get to the point where you can um, go on and do podcasts and talk about it and help other people? Yes. But 
um, it is always something where there's maintenance. There's going to be things where maybe you're driving along and a song pops up and that song reminds you of your childhood and, you know, or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, there's a death in the family and everyone is brought together for, you know, those events that have to take place and things like that. So there will be times in your, in your life that things will pop up where it's, it's almost like a, a healing ebbs, really ebbs and flows. It's not like a uh-huh. fine line. Yeah, that mm-hmm. that actually leads me to my next question. We we talked already, you talked a little bit about how there's not really a set limit, time limit for a person to work through each mm-hmm. one of these stages. Everyone kind of works through them um, at their own pace and based upon their own needs. Um, but in your experience, is it common for people to progress through these stages, maybe in different order, um, or for people to revert to a previous stage when when they have that that trigger, if you will, that that kind of puts them back in that space of feeling um, feeling the trauma in a very real way again, is it common for people to to work through those stages in different ways and revert to previous stages? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it is definitely. I feel like, of course, most people are going to start uh, with the pre awareness, whether or not that pre awareness happened, you know, when your childhood. Some some kids are very insightful and are able to, to know that there's something wrong. Um, and they maybe are even in the uncovering, you know, even as an adolescent, most adolescents just by nature of needing to survive their environment are in, are not aware of, of the level of, of trauma that's going on in their environment just because that's how they survive. So I say all that to say most, most people start there, but it can go um, any, people can go back to other stages, you know, for example, maybe death in the family is a common one that people will be like, oh, I think I've, I've, I thought I was healed. And then, um, you know, my dad died. And then I had to go back, I felt like I was going back to the digging in, felt like I was going back to the uncovering. It's like it all came rushing back. That is very normal. Um, it is very much like um, with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross with the um, stages of grief. She talked about how you can go back and forth from other stages. And it's very, a, really similar to like that kind of pattern that, that she found with people recovering from our people managing grief that you can go back and forth and, you know, you can repeat stages, you can skip stages. Um, you can, you know, go back and, and be like, you know, I thought I was in the understanding, but I guess I'm in the uncovering. Maybe I'm kind of wavering back and forth. It's definitely something I kind of like what I said earlier, it's, it's something that usually clients like your people know in hindsight that they've gone through the stages. I mean, rarely are, you know, people know like the second it happens, it's usually something where they can look back and be like, okay, yeah, I really, I've gone six months without any, you know, headaches or insomnia or arguments with, with my mom or things like that. And then each person progresses for a different amount of time. Um, There is no, there's no set amount of time for some people. If they have a lot of, of support, maybe they do a lot of reading, they do listen to a lot of podcasts, they have a really good support group, a really like maybe strong spirituality, strong faith. I feel like they progress faster because they're able to use those resources. Because we know that people have different support systems and different uh, levels of resiliency and just different personalities and it manifests differently in people. Um, is it realistic for everyone to expect that their history won't affect them in adulthood? We already talked about the fact that 
it's not really like you get to that point to where you're done doing the work, mm-hmm. but rather you continue, um, you continue to nurture that, that process throughout the rest of your life. But in your experience, is it realistic for people to expect that the history won't affect them in any way? I feel like it's unrealistic. I, I feel like our history affects who we are today and affects really everything from our sense of self, our self-esteem to how we relate to other people. Now we can do the work to kind of change that, but it definitely is not realistic to affect that, to ex- uh, expect that it wouldn't affect us. I know a lot of people think that it doesn't. And, you know, and I respect that. That's the, I think that's the stage of change that they're in, but mm-hmm. no, I don't, I don't think it's realistic. Yeah. And yeah. So for, you know, our listeners are, um, by and large, social workers. Yes. So um, what are some interventions that um, might be utilized for social workers who are working with clients who are, who are trying to understand more about their own traumatic experiences and their trauma history and how that's manifesting in adulthood? Are there any interventions specifically that you would recommend for those social workers working with that client? So I find, because I feel like right now there's a lot of, you know, different uh, theories and different like you know emdr whatever um you know ifs i personally really like ifs but i also feel like it depends on the year of whatever is the popular um therapeutic technique of choice and i and i respect that there have many clients who have benefited greatly from from emdr and that was the only thing that worked i have many clients that um benefited greatly from ifs and that was the only thing that worked i really feel like the, the number one thing that's going to affect change in your client is your relationship with them. Less than the, moda- I mean, more than the modality or anything like that. If you have a client and you feel like EMDR, is, for example, is the only thing that's going to work for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's between you and the client, your clinical discretion of what you feel like you need to do for the client. Um, if you need to refer out whatever, whatever you need to do. But the number one thing is really letting the client um, direct you know, what they're comfortable talking about and your relationship with them and believing them. So many times, and I've had this experience too, on the other side, when I was in college, where the therapist saying, you know, you really need to get over that, you know, that's in the past and things like that. And that can do more damage to a client than any, you know, modality that you use that you shouldn't have used or something something like that. Like a lot of times clinicians will say to me, well, you know, I'm using CBT, but should I try this? I worry more about, are you believing the client? Are you providing a safe space for them to talk about their history without judgment and without um, feeling like you're, you know, denying or minimizing? That is like the number one above, above all else. Yeah, that makes sense. So for those looking to heal from their own history. Um, many, many of us in this profession, mm-hmm. we, we also have our own histories, right? Yes. And so um, what would you recommend for people who are living those stages currently and seeing the manifestations of that trauma? Um, is therapy necessary for everyone? Is it recommended for most? Um, what, what would you say um, to help support people who are, who are healing Uh, currently from their own histories of of traumatic experiences. So the thing I like to tell people is to do something that whatever helps them develop their own self-awareness. So for some people, they like journaling. For some people, that's the last thing they want to do is journal. 
gardening, um, going out and, and taking time to meditate, doing yoga, walking, whatever it is that works for you. If I say do yoga and the thought makes you go, oh, that's the last thing I want to do. Don't do that. You know, whatever it is that works for you, that you can take time to really self-reflect. The, the big things are self-reflecting. The big things are developing self-awareness, um, doing a lot of educating, listening to podcasts, reading books, um, things like that, talking to other people about their history, reading. I think that therapy is something I recommend if you feel like the symptoms are impacting your life. If you're feeling yeah. like it's impacting your sleep, impacting your relationships, then, then it's necessary. Um, if you have a lot of support or if you, if you have what you feel like is the support you need and you don't feel like you need anyone to to help you manage any negative symptoms that are coming up, you're just kind of exploring and becoming aware. I, I don't think therapy is necessary. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that, for that discussion, uh, Katie. Now for anyone listening who might want to learn more about this topic, how might they get a hold of you or where can they get a copy of your books? So I would like to just direct everyone to my website. Um, it's kind of confusing. My mom spelled my name kind of weird. It's www, and it's my full name, Caitlin Gillis, L-C-S-W. So it's K-A-Y-T-L-Y-N-G-I-L-L-I-S. LCSW for licensed clinical social worker.com. And my my books are available all on Amazon. So you can you can put my name into Amazon and my books will come up. Um, or you can go to my website and um, there should be links there. All right. Well perfect. Well Katie, thank you so much for your time and for this conversation. Thank you. I, I know that I found it very helpful and enlightening and I'm sure that our listeners will as well. Um, keep doing the incredible work that you're doing and, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm.